You are listening to a recording of the Open Society Foundations, working to build vibrant and tolerant democracies worldwide. Visit us at opensocietyfoundations.org. I'm Brett Davidson from the Public Health Program, and I guess part of the work that I've been doing in the PHP around narrative change and researching narrative change and how it might relate to how we try to impact policy. Um, I wrote a paper, and one of the uh, people I quoted was Paul Kearney, because he has a great blog which looks at uh, different kinds of um, policy processes and theories of policy processes. And um, I put kind of the blog up on, on a couple of websites. One of them is on think tanks. And then I got an email from Paul Kearney saying he saw I had reference to his work, and he was interested in talking. So we ended up making contact that way and find out that he's actually done a lot of work on um, understanding policy process, but then looking at this idea of evidence-based policy making, which I think resonates a lot. We're always calling for, there's one great photo I saw, which is a guy at a protest saying, what do we want evidence-based policy? When do we want it? After peer review. <laughs> 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 right. um, but we all, uh, I think also, I think sometimes disbelieving it. Why don't these politicians, here's the evidence, why don't they just adopt it? What's wrong with them, right? It's so clear. So I think it's about a lot more than that, obviously. And you know, I think what the kind of writing Paul has done um, around, um, around this really reflects some of the thinking that we've looked at around you know, cognitive biases, um, you know, the, think, the Daniel Kahneman type of thinking about slow and fast thinking. And you know, we, we use shortcuts for our thinking. And of course, politicians do too, because there are people like all of us. Um, and so I thought it'd be really interesting. Um, he has a, a new book out on, is it out? Is it actually? Uh, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. Okay. Uh, on this very topic. And I thought um, we're having a two day seminar tomorrow on storytelling and politics, which Paul King is going to participate in. And I thought while he's here, we might as well grab him to do a Brian Blake for us as well. So um, he's a professor of politics and public policy at Stirling University in Scotland. And yeah, it'll be great to have him here to talk a bit about his work. So that over to you. Okay, thank you. Uh, yeah, so I mean, my usual party piece is to say um, I think it's, it's important to recognise in policymaking that you can only tell policymakers what they'll remember, you know. Uh, and so I want to do that with you. I, I, I only want to tell you what you remember. So I mean, it's interesting. I saw this um, interview recently with two proponents of evidence-based medicine, which I guess is a big kind of reference point in health, at least at least the methods and hierarchy that we would be so used to. And uh, they, they asked him, well, how, the, how do you get people to adopt this in the curriculum, that sort of thing? And he said, um, you, you tell simple, effective stories, and you inspire people on the assumption that they won't remember anything else you've said. We'll just, we'll just remember it was good. Uh, so <laughs> I thought if it's good enough for them, it's good enough for me. So, uh, so I also want to talk about five things, but only only because I have five fingers. So I do this. I think it's a great visual thing. If you say I want to remember five things, and we can rhyme them off with the digits. Uh, so I mean, the first thing ties into what we said at the start. It, it's a great phrase. I think evidence-based policymaking is this brilliant phrase, um, and you know, lots of people will get behind it. I get an amazing amount of attention just using that phrase, evidence-based policymaking. Oh, um, but it doesn't mean anything. I mean, that's that's the only the only problem with the the, the aim of evidence-based policymaking is that it's impossible to define, and I think that's partly the point. 
it's, it's not there really to define. It's there as a political slogan. It's there to demonstrate what you want. And, you know, if people aren't quite sure what you want, well, that's, I mean, that's, just, a, that's just a small drawback. Okay. I think you can demonstrate that with looking into the meaning of each of the four words that make up evidence-based policy. So, evidence... So, although in, in the post I'm trying to portray this as a series of choices you have to make if you want to pursue evidence-based policy making. So the first is to work out what you think it means. You know, how do you operationalise it? So the first is, you know, what do you think evidence is? Now I think, particularly in public health, this is a, I think this is a particularly relevant because in public health it's often scientific evidence that counts and scientific evidence is something that is um, based on a hierarchy at the top is evidence from randomised controlled trials and their systematic review and everything else is just a bit rubbish. And that includes expertise, and includes service user and particular practitioner feedback. So you can decide, well, evidence just means, uh, you know, the top quality evidence. Then the second word is which metaphor you want to go for. So do you want to go for based, which suggests <laughs> you start with scientific evidence and then everything else comes next? Or informed, because you're more pragmatic about what that means? Or something else? Evidence something policy making. Um, there's a, again, there's a choice there. If you, I think any science advisor I've spoken to prefers informed, and they prefer to say informed because because it, it displays that they've thought about this and they know how <laughs> you know how far they can go. Uh, but really, uh, it's it's still not particularly meaningful. Whichever word you choose, it's, it's not, it doesn't really take you that far. Then policy is my favourite. I don't know if, if anyone's done a like a, a course in policy studies, you start off, what is policy? And we come up with some definitions and you think, like, you, you end up no better off than you started. <laughs> but I mean, what we're talking about here is, um, I think what we call policy is a collection of actions and instruments by lots of people that we try and analytically turn into description of policy mm. and that's I mean that's no mean feat so I mean I think that's count it's counterintuitive I think if you come to policy for the first time you think this is a straightforward thing you can point to you know decisions made by you know, a small number of key actors at the heart of government produce what they want and then something happens uh, but, but, if, but if you want I mean that's a great advert for a masters in public policy and we'll, we'll spend a year telling telling people that that doesn't happen and then finally, I think policy making or, or policy makers. I mean, again, intuitively, you think, well, these are elected policy makers, or these are people that you can clearly point to at the heart of them. If they're not elected, they're senior bureaucrats, senior civil servants. Uh, but um, I think a, a key part of policy analysis is to point out that there are many types of policy makers, and there, there is this very blurry distinction between policy maker and a policy influencer. So a lot of the literature talks about the idea of um, policy collectivities or networks or something like that, to try and capture this idea that if you want to work out who's making policy, you don't, st you don't stop at who's elected or, or who you can, who, who, whose name is written down in a, an organogram. Okay. So first choice is to try and make sense and display what you mean by evidence-based policy making. And I think you can tell a lot about people's political positions by how they define those terms. 
The second thing is to work out how to deal with uh, the psychology of policy making. So I think a lot of um, baseline discussions of policy making are kind of based on the hope that you have a sense of what we often call comprehensive rationality. So governments or policymakers are in a position to gather the information they need to make decisions in a, in a kind of comprehensive way. They can gather all the information they need in a systematic way and consider it all and then make decisions in a, in a fairly reasoned or rational way. Uh, but instead we talk about bounded rationality, which is you know points to limits on the extent to which they can produce information and uh, consider it. And policymakers deal with that in two ways. If you're being opt optimistic, you say, well, they primarily deal with it in a in a goal-orientated way. So they work out what they want, and then they, they use simple rules to work out how they're going to get reliable information from particular sources, uh, you know, written sources and particular uh, people that can provide them reliable information. But they also use this second shortcut, <coughs> which is you know describing you know various ways sort of fast thinking or system. I always forget the number system one or system two, <laughs> one of those, the fast one, or it's uh, you know moral reasoning or emotional decision making or intuitive gut level thinking based on uh, very quick decisions and a sense that people make these decisions almost instantly and then trying to find evidence back up the decisions. So I think, I mean, that's another political slogan is the idea of policy-based evidence, which is people make decisions first, then try and back them up. Um, now, again, you know, I mean, it's a kind of cheap, if you want <coughs> cheap, excuse me, cheap interest in a talk, you say, oh, there's so much policy-based evidence. Um, but um, I mean, I think... This is the, the second choice one would make. It's either to simply bemoan the fact that policymakers act this way. It's to try and be more pragmatic and adapt to these processes. Or something I'm interested in more and more is to try and see these heuristics that policymakers use in a more positive sense. To see that they make sense to policymakers. You know, they, so from the outside, this looks emotional, it looks biased, it looks based on ideology. But I think from the inside, it looks consistent and it looks sensible. And I think, for me, the, the interesting part for researchers is to try and work out why policymakers use particular heuristics and the extent to which you can influence that process. You know, instead of just saying, well, this is, this is a bad thing, uh, try and work out how to make inevitable heuristic decision making a good thing. So I think, I mean, a lot of that I think comes down to the way in which we describe fast thinking. So I think sometimes it can be described as, uh, particularly in, in, in perhaps in evidence based medicine, this, this idea that you know, practitioners rely on these kind of un unthinking mechanisms that, that makes them produce bad choices because they're not systematic. I think another approach associated with people like I think Gigerenza is to say well a lot of these heuristics are, are so-called fast and frugal. You know they're they're very efficient and they're they're very effective in the environment in which people operate. 
I can give you some exam I can give you some UK examples of that if you're interested, but we I'll, I'll wait until you've had your lunch before we follow up. So that I mean that's your second decision. How, how do you adapt to this inevitability of, of policymakers using heuristics? The third thing is to work out how to adapt to sort of complex policymaking systems or environments. So another reference point that's kind of popular in policy studies <coughs> is this idea of a policy cycle, and I think it describes what perhaps we would like policymaking to be like. If you designed policymaking, I think this is what you'd come up with. So a simple cycle which involves a series of stages in which you start with defining a problem, making a decision to solve it, legitimising, implementing, evaluating, and then working out if it worked and, and go around cycling it. Now instead, I mean, I think almost all policy theory is devoted to coming up with a much more realistic description of what happens. And there are some nice metaphors, I guess, around that. So instead of thinking it was one cycle, you think of it in, in terms of, I don't know, say 10,000 interlocking cycles. In fact, this is when a good picture would do. Um, I don't know if you're the kind of generation that knew Spirograph. <laughs> right, so I think this is what I'm trying to put in your mind. There's this complex series of shapes that would describe a policy-making system rather than a, a discrete cycle. So I think a lot of the, if you boil down a lot of the literature, you would say it consists of five or six parts. So you're trying to identify an environment in which there are many actors interacting at many levels and types of government. Each of those levels and types of government might have a particular set of rules or norms associated with what they do. There are networks that develop within these environments, and those are networks between people who make policy and people who influence it. And they trade things like you know, access for information and advice. Then there are uh, you know, so-called ideas, or the sort of dominant ways of thinking about policy problems that are often taken for granted and, and shape the way in which we describe any solution. And there's a sort of catch-all term uh, for context or events, you know, so events can be routine, like elections, or they can be crises, or conditions can refer to anything from, you know, demographic conditions to, you know, socioeconomic, and, and these these underpin any decisions that take place. And there are discussions within policy studies about the extent to which policymakers are actually in control of what they do, or if they're, you know, simply responding to these big conditions and events. So you put those things together and you have... Um, discussions of you know things like uh, systems in which policy emerges despite central control, or you know things seem too complicated to work out who's actually making decisions. And I think that produces your third choice, which is, to my mind, if you know, I say it says an organisation with limited resources. How many of your resources do you want to put into trying to understand that process and to try and influence it at many levels? And I think you would quickly decide well. There's no point in us acting as if there's only one authoritative decision-maker at the heart of government that we can simply lobby. But then it's not easy to move from that to say, well, who specifically will we speak to on a regular basis? Now, I should say I'm not giving you answers to any of these questions. <laughs> They're just, just raising them. Okay, so that, that would be the third one. I mean, how, how do you respond? So I think in the book, I say, you know, find out where the action is and, and who you should form coalitions with and that sort of thing. But... You know, if you, if you, yeah, that sounds good, I think, if I tell you and then go away. 
But if you think about it a bit more, I haven't actually told you what to do. Just said, form coalitions. <laughs> okay, so the fourth, fourth decision point, I think is, um, now this is, this is, I knew I should have stuck with three. You know, three <laughs> is a magic number. I think four and five are hard to remember. But the fourth is the stuff that I'm more interested in now, which is, um, well, I might get these out of order in terms of the blog, but the, it's to decide um, the extent to which you want to defend particular forms of evidence, given that there are many other principles that you could refer to when you make policy. So other principles can include you know, um, good governance based on you know, combining evidence with public values or um, giving discretion to local public bodies to make policy instead of um, imposing it from the top. And I think as soon as you accept those other values, it means that you have to give up some of your evidence-based values. Uh, so um, the, the example I like is, um, now you can caricature these things to some extent, but um, if you are committed to the use of randomized controlled trials, they require a particular discipline in which you're trying to work out the, the active ingredient, you know, the thing that works within them. And that often requires uniform delivery. You, to compare lots of the same interventions across different, uh, you know, uh, across time and space, you have to have the same basic model each time. To evaluate it and compare with the, with other places, it has to be pretty much the same model, or you you can't compare the two things. Now that means I think I can a national, often a national level, uh, policy making process in which they are funding and delivering the same basic model across across a particular. Space. Now the alternative at the other end of the scale is to say, well, we value local governance. We think policy will only work if we get high ownership from stakeholders and local areas. We think that uh, it's good to learn from practitioner experience, service user experience. Uh, you know, the, the sort of stories that people tell in local communities that you, you just can't understand the effect of policy unless you know them. Now if that's the case, I think you, you give up almost completely on the RCT model because um, the adherents to the RCT model do not respect any of that, those forms of evidence. <coughs> so it's, it's not, so it looks like, I think if you look at these things from afar, it looks like you can make two separate choices, one on evidence, one on governance, but they're, they're inextricably linked and you know, there are trade-offs between them that, that just involve horrible compromises that are, are they're, they're values-based and political-based. They're, they're, not, they're not evidential. I can't give you any evidence from policy studies that will help you make a decision between these models. These are simple value choices. So that's your fourth choice. Okay, yeah, four, yeah, four and five are pretty similar. So yeah, yeah, I've really tried to pull the fast one there. Um, but uh, yeah, so but th so this is work I've done with colleagues like uh, Catherine Oliver. So about how how far you're willing to go. So so there is that question about you know do you want to at all costs defend the value of RCTs, knowing that there will be all these unintended consequences. I think another another choice to make is uh, the extent to which you want to be an honest broker or not. You know, are you there simply to provide evidence and then stop and say well. It's not my business to tell elected policymakers what to do. Or, if you know that people make emotional decisions, you know that 
you know, there are lots of groups lobbying, appealing to their emotions, manipulating them. Your decision is, do you be an honest broker with no influence <coughs> or do you get your hands dirty to seek influence? And, and, that, and that seems to be the trickiest decision of all because I think as soon as you choose to get your hands dirty and you know, you're, you're, you're basing your influence on your expertise but also your <coughs> strategies, you know, your manipulative strategies, you're no longer the person who represents that hierarchy of evidence. You know, you're, you're, an, you're an advocate, an expert, and as soon as you become that person, you're low down on this hierarchy that you start off defending. So it's not even that you have to make this choice based on your values. It's, there's a strategic choice, I think, to make there about the extent to which uh, you know, the, the power of particular people in, in, in places like public health depends on them being, or, or at least looking objective. Now, I think I've, there's a little cop out at the end of the post which says, you know, it says, where do you go from there? And I say, oh, I, I don't know. Uh, and it's, I mean, that's, I mean, I, but I think that's, that's normal, isn't it? Because I imagine a world in which someone like me could come along and give you a, pl a blueprint for action, which would be applicable across all time and space. That's not the world we live in. Instead, these are just, uh, you know, th th this is a way to identify choices. Now, I think a more positive end would be to say, I think a lot of these choices are um, open to research. You know, you can <coughs> work out the evidence on how to present evidence. You can engage in trial and error strategies, shared experiences. I mean, I think that's, that's probably one of these things that's lacking from a lot of the research. You have... So let me give you an example. I mean, I know we're kind of recording this, but I was at a, uh, I'll be kind of nice, I'll be euphemistic, but there was, I was at this conference of 600 science advisors in, you know, organized by a European Commission. And they were very much um, you know, either bemoaning sort of Donald Trump-like existence in which people didn't listen to experts anymore, or they were saying, right, it's up to us to be objective, honest brokers. Or they were saying, um, well, it's, it's hard to know how to get evidence you know, more accepted within modern policymaking. Now, I think the issue there is that these are largely people with a scientific background, you know, uh, you know, physical scientists, science, medical science, and very little social science. And the evidence on success in that context is personal experience. You know, people give uh, a sense of what's, what's worked and not in sort of anecdotal form. And there's, there's a lot of scope there to share more systematically evidence on how people engage, what sort of you know, stories, because you know, we talk about telling stories, but we, we don't know how effective they are or what, what characteristics they have. And that would presumably be a good thing to know. You know, you wouldn't want to look at this kind of problem and think and, and reinvent the wheel each time, thinking, well, what can I do in this situation? Wouldn't it be good if there was a kind of repository for shared experiences about how people gave science advice? Now, I don't have that repository. I don't get too excited. But the, I think, I think it, it, it's possible to start producing one. OK, so that's, that's as much as I'll say just now.
thank you. <laughs> I mean, I think you. I think you know one of the things you talked about towards the end, which is I think the discussion we have. So, um, which you referenced, we, you know, live in a world of, of Trump, where almost like post truth, right? Say whatever you want because it works with a certain group of people. Um, never mind what the evidence says, what the facts say. Um, so there's that, and there's like, okay, we will just stick very rigidly to our what we believe is the objective mm -hmm. evidence, but that has very little impact. Um, but the fear that if we move from that, we start, like it's either that or Trump. And so how do you, you know, like that if we start to gauge in, in what some might call manipulative behavior, which is kind of what we do, <laughs> which is, you know, just testing which words work more effectively with people, uh, uh, carrying out some kind of spectacle which will move people emotionally, telling stories. Um, are we doing down a dangerous path that is going to lead to Trump? You know, I mean, that, that, that's, you know, are we, are we being dangerously manipulative? Are we then no better than those we oppose? Mm. And I think that's, that's a question that, that confronts people and that I think sometimes... So you want to, yeah, you recognize if I do this, it will be more effective, but I wanna, don't want to do that because that's a slippery slope. Um, yeah. You're supposed to solve this, really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I think all I can do is provide cover for this kind of work. Because I think you could say, you know, imagine you could say something like, you know, political science tells us that the only way health scientists scientists can be effective in this world is to engage in this kind of strategies. It kind of gives cover, you know, you make it sound kind of scientific, right? I th and I think that's the kind of language we use. But if, you, but if you're talking about, I think there are ways, I, I use terms like manipulative to be pro provocative, you know, but I think if you're presenting yourself, you don't have to say that, you say we're we're, we're f no. I mean, I think a classic thing to do is to f we're framing issues in terms of the the stated goals of elected policymakers. So we say, given the goals that they have stated, here are the arguments that work in that context. And that you know, to me, that that kind of sounds like a defendable um, strategy in which you accept the limits to. Scientific evidence. You accept the um, legitimacy of elected policymakers, and you you make your evidence fit that agenda or something. Like that. Now, I mean, you solve one problem, you make another. Because I think this comes up with questions like, you know, what if you're trying to provide evidence for governments that you find incredibly distasteful? Uh, you know, you yeah, that's. What I mean. But uh, I mean, uh, yeah. But I mean, for me, I mean, this is. <coughs> you know, th this is politics, isn't it? I mean, it's actually, no, so, I mean, the interesting thing for me is when I think, when, when we provide an undergraduate degree in political science or something like that, I've, I've started to ask myself, at what point do we talk about evidence? And I think you could almost go through a whole undergraduate degree without really talking about these things. Because what you start with <coughs> in politics is you say, well, uh, it's a way to... Um, so you identify more than one person, you identify different preferences, you say, well, we need a way to adjudicate between conflicting preferences. Uh, usually that legitimate way is to uh, have an, a figure of authority that we elect, and we use principles, governance principles, to work out the rules so that everyone's happy with those decisions. 
and you can describe that in lots of lots and lots of ways. And the production of evidence really doesn't come into it. It's about how you cooperate with people uh, to either get what you want or be satisfied with a with a process. And I think so. For me, that that if you start with that position, then you wouldn't be too worried about you know the political choices or the the other problems along the way of evidence-based policymaking because you wouldn't expect evidence to have such a direct impact on that process. You would expect something very different. You would expect all these compromises to just be a part of life. There you go, I mean, that sounds quite... Uh, that's, that's better, <laughs> isn't it? <laughs> Any questions? Yeah, Daniel. Hi, thanks. Um, I'm Daniel and I uh, work on I issues related to drugs and health mm. where, in fact, the power of emotional arguments, etc., is very much dominant over mm. evidence, even though I, I take your points about the limits of a randomized controlled trial. And I guess I, ha um, I have a question in two directions. The first is, for me, one of the interesting things about randomized controlled trials is they control away real life. That's one of the limits, but it also shows in some instances what is possible if a system actually actually really cared about, for example, following people and making sure that they weren't lost to follow up and things. So you have a trial in Thailand of HIV, uh, HIV treatment as prevention for drug users where they made sure that they paid the drug users every day to take their medicine and they followed them into detention or into forced treatment or anywhere else. And for me, the, the interesting finding was not the efficacy of the treatment because in fact they've controlled the way all the real life circumstance, but just how if you really wanted to, you could actually retain people and, and make sure that they got a service, uh, even people that you didn't think um, w would be possible to do that with. And so I guess I'm curious if there are ways to use the randomized controlled trial in, uh, not to just answer the question of what is the active agent that has the intended effect, but what can it teach us about how we would like to model society or how we could. And then a related question is just uh, if you have thought at all about um, for the many questions that are unsuitable for randomized controlled trials, if there are other quasi-scientific forms of evidence generation that you have found compelling mm. um, that are enough like science to get to claim the authority that comes with scientifically based evidence. Right. Oh, I tell you that, would, imagine I'd come up with something for the second question. <laughs> that would be great. The answer is no. I guess I'll go for that straight away or keep in suspense. Uh, but I mean, I should say, I mean, I, my, my back, you, you wouldn't expect that from my background. It's, it's not in um, RCTs or anything. I mean, my background, I'm a qualitative social scientist, you know. Um, so actually, the thing that, that I like more is, is the idea of something like a, 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 I mean, increasingly called realist reviews. So you, so you say um, uh, the, the mechanisms you're talking about, the mechanisms that we try and identify in RCTs, you would say, well, they're, they're only, they only work in particular conditions. So let's work out the conditions under which they work and then work out the extent to which you can replicate those conditions somewhere else or something like that. Um, now, um, the thing is, I would say that this kind of a realist agenda doesn't go far enough because I think if you're going down that mm -hmm. road, you may as well go right to the end, which is part of the part of the benefit of a realist review is you can say to specific governments or specific policymakers, this is what's going to work in your context. 
And I think if you're doing that, you, know, if you may as well go the whole thing and say, and try and work out the kinds of evidence uh, they'll accept. Because I think, I mean, for me, the, the, a bigger issue of attachment to a hierarchy is that you rule out so much evidence in your review that a policymaker would not, <coughs> and, and therefore you, you run the risk of not knowing what kind of evidence influences them and just being not part of the conversation. So, I mean, I, again, we're recording, but I saw, I'll be kind of vague about this, but I saw, I saw one of these in something I was studying, and uh, the government had said to them, like, tell us the evidence on something. And they pretty much said, they did that thing, I guess you're used to a systematic review. They said, right, well, we identified 5,000 possible things, and uh, only five of them were good enough for us to consider, and they didn't tell us anything. And that's what they gave the government, you know. So they, said, they pretty much said, we can't answer your question because the evidence isn't out there. Now, I th now you know that somewhere else in government they're going to say, right, I'll, I'll tell you the real story, yeah. you know, and this, is, and this will influence them because they have to act and they won't listen to someone that will say we need more evidence. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm conscious I'm getting further away from your, your question. Uh, I mean, on the, on the first point, I think what I was thinking when you described that was that that was a, an example in which political values came first, didn't they? And then the RCT came. So, I mean, that's, that's an interesting question. You know, what's the evidence on harm reduction or something like that? Well, you first decide, I, th I think in that case, demonstrates, first decide what you're willing to do and then seek evidence, mm -hmm. you know. So, I mean, I know that that's... Um, so I think Thailand would be a good comparison with, say, um, you know, a, f a few Latin American countries where they're still more committed to, say, the death penalty for drug dealing or, um, you know, huge sentences if you're caught with a certain amount. And so the, f the first discussion to be had is not, you know, what, what works to minimise drug use. It's um, given that governments want to do this, what works, and that's a very different mm -hmm. thing, isn't it? Yeah. So, now, I think we need to go there. You go. There's, there's dilemma number six, I guess. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's just, um, you know, to what extent are you willing to work within a, a, an individual government's political agenda to provide evidence, or trying to change their minds about the questions they should be asking? <coughs> that's, a, oh, that's, that's a tough one. I'm curious about <coughs> less like who questions about the evidence and the mm. power of particular evidence than questions about like who are experts, who mm. policymakers seek out as experts to give mm. them evidence. <coughs> and rather than like change the narrative about evidence, I think we can change the narrative about who the experts are. Mm. So if we only think about professors or researchers as the experts because they can do all these fancy statistical techniques and they can gather all massive amounts of data to think about people with their lived experiences as the experts and the data that they provide for policymakers and like how we can make that or how we can bring them up to the status of experts with the other folks mm -hmm. so that they're in contact with policymakers providing data too. That wasn't a question. I was just a, <laughs> 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 a thought. Yeah. No, but I mean, it's, a, it's a good point. I mean, I know. Um, I mean, this I mean, is a very parochial example, but th but this does come up with 
stuff I look at in, mm. in Scotland. Right? So <coughs> may as well talk about Scotland. Um, but the so you've got a choice about uh, so as a prevention early intervention agenda. So they want to intervene as early as possible in people's lives to improve their life chances. So one way to go is the nurse family partnership, <coughs> RCT driven, where the expert is David Olds, and um, you know it's all it's all there for you. Ready. Uh, the other is to say, um, well, we want to find out uh, individual contexts from each area and. Practitioners tell stories in the video. These stories, and they, they say, "Well, this this is this is what worked in our areas." And and the, and and I think the key thing in terms of expertise is it meant something to the people who would be responsible for the delivery of policy. They they might see you know they might see evidence from an expert and think, "Well, I I, I don't I don't quite understand what they're telling me. I assume that they're right. experts." But um, I'm not quite sure how to, and there's a lot of uncertainty. Whereas you tell stories with people who are close enough to your experience, then then <coughs> this can be, uh, in some sense, you know, lower quality evidence, but more effective mm. evidence that you can use. Yeah. Now I know that there are some attempts in Scotland and other places to provide this compromise between those two <coughs> things. And I don't know. It's it's often this phrase is uh, improvement science. Instead of implementation science, improvement science. I don't know if this is a. Mm -hmm. um, now, unfortunately, I mean, I think this this is another of those things. It sounds great, right? So let's 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 provide the best of both worlds here. Let's combine evidence pragmatically, and let's train people to use it uh, on the ground to experiment with evidence and share experiences. And it sounds great, I think, uh, the way you talk about it. But but I th I think you can detect two different approaches to improvement science based on the extent to which you want to rely on you know, the established experts or service user experts. So one, um, I think if you have improvement science designed by health scientists, it's, uh, it's, it's still hierarchy driven with an attempt to incorporate other people through consultation. Mm -hmm. and, and that's very different, I think, from um, you know, a, you know, actual involvement, or there's a kind of more service user or, or practitioner-driven process, in which you have to accept that you're going to let go of the idea that there is a hierarchy of evidence because people are just going to use what they find useful. Um, so, I think there are there are ap approaches there in which people are trying to work out how to involve, uh, you know, local practitioners in a more useful way. Um, but there, I think there are some unresolved issues with that, uh, particularly in, in Westminster systems. If we go back to the, the political side, as soon as you decide to let go to that extent, there's no real way of um, tracking who is responsible for the outcomes. So it's all local. The people who are making these decisions are unelected. The elected central government has, <coughs> has said we we are going to let go and let people do this for us and um, it sounds good but they never they never stick to it because they're held to account every four or five years during elections and however they say they've given this to someone else they're held responsible so at this so while they they do all this good stuff at the same time they've got a performance management system that completely undermines everything that they do oh. 
right, okay, let's not end. Let's make sure. <laughs> <laughs> let's not end. I, I felt we were ending on a good one, right? But that's but there's a, there's an immense contradiction there in an agenda to uh, spread out expertise and, and delivery, and to have an accountable system based on elections. Yeah, I mean, I think I, you know, get to get like this point about local experience as well. I mean, once you, so I mean, I'm always talking about the importance of stories, about local expertise. But once you go down that road as well, like how how do you how do you make sure that your policy is not just based on anecdote? And you know that uh, that 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 experience has to be then somehow seen beyond individual stories into something else, and then you start gathering evidence again, right, in some kind of systematic <coughs> way. So, <I> think, yeah. <coughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, building on that, Brett, I, I do have a question about whether we have to be careful about where we pursue evidence advocacy that's more about stories rather than RCT type evidence and whether there's a danger that you do that in certain sectors health education social protection mm -hmm. and that it is effective there and perhaps then they're, they're seen as softer issues you know that those are the issues that are more about touchy-feely human mm -hmm. experience rather than trying to engage in advocacy in other spaces of decision making where you know, and I will always think about finance ministries, you know, how do right. you engage in that type of storytelling in a way that's effective in that space and um, I'm just struck by not only the spire graphs of the different value systems mm -hmm. and the different yeah. processes and different range of decision makers but whether the choice you make about a particular type of evidence you also need to consider the kind of unintended consequences of that, you know. And I think that's the bit that I would yeah. struggle with because I think in some ways we we see many organisations that are getting incredibly effective at the story-based evidence within something like health activism, and then are stuck when they then go into a different decision-making space. Right. Um, and I, you know, I just love to know if we know anything about how that plays out. You know, how you understand the effectiveness of that kind of advocacy in hard sectors. Yeah, it's kind of gestating this mm. idea, but it's sort of building on some of the earlier comments. You know, I'm I'm curious about the you talked about the opportunities for, for influence in a positive sense. So how can we mm. influence these processes? But I'm also thinking about the the realities of influence in the negative sense from, from our, the perspective of our issues in, in each of these models. The, you know, the, the evidence-based, um, the production of evidence being manipulated actively, for example, by the pharmaceutical industry, mm. you know, sort of, amongst other things, plowing my way through bad pharma at the moment, this book which looks at how uh, evidence which doesn't go towards the benefits of new medicines is buried and lost deliberately and you know selective use of evidence selective publication of it and so on mm. um, and and then similarly with the more anecdotal approaches the 
if you like, the front groups that um, per, you know seem to speak to patients, uh, both in pain sector at the moment here mm -hmm. in the US, and obviously in in terms of the smokers' rights and all the rest of it, mm. um, and and kind of navigating that reality that either of these two models for for influencing policy development is already corrupted uh, mm. in, in some way. I'm not sure if there's a question in here somewhere, but is there an alternative uh, that, that's somehow more immune to some of these influences? Mm. And a few years ago, there's a uh, Swedish, um, <coughs> he's actually Scottish, but he works in Sweden, he was telling me about the legislative development process in Sweden that's mm. entirely different, that often the government will put forward an objective <coughs> for legislation yeah. and it goes to a cross-party mm. committee yeah. to review and receive you know, uh, submissions and, and all sorts of different kinds mm. of evidence from civil society experts in the field and experts by experience mm. uh, as well. And then two years later, uh, a legislative proposal is either put forward or not. If that's, I mean, that's an entirely different and much more mature, it seems to me, process of considering legislation than just a political priority and then a, a rush and, as you say, policy-based evidence. I mean, yeah. Are there other examples like that? Is that something that's worth thinking about? Well, um, I mean, I'm, I'm no great expert on Sweden, but, um, yeah, I mean... I mean, I hate to put a downer on this, right? But the my impression is that the use of commissions of inquiry in Sweden is diminishing. So it used to be far more routine to do this, and and it could take more than two years. It could take you know, people would be prepared for this to take a long time, and it would be cross party, and it would be this idea that can create consensus and that sort of thing. Um, my yeah. So my impression is their number has gone down. Um, I mean, it's relevant to sort of UK in that uh, say some of the devolved parliaments were kind of modelled on the side of a more consensus democracy um, but they couldn't get over there, there are these compromises I think you make with that kind of system which is, which is partly that you no longer put faith in a, in a legislature or a leg an elected assembly to make these or legitimise these decisions because by the time Commission reports, uh, it pretty much a done deal, and the the, the committees rubber stamp it, um, and and there's a sense in which you're either generating consensus or you're managing dissent. You know, you're kind of smoothing out processes, and um, I mean, actually, the, the the Scottish government's often quite good at this, and as a consultation style that makes you think that you've been included <laughs> and you think well, well I don't agree with the end point but I really appreciated the, the effort you know that sort of thing so I think that's what I'd associate with Sweden and the alternative is to just have everything out in the open and have it adversarial and everyone knows where they stand and who they're competing with uh, so I, and I know that there are political scientists who far prefer the consensus model um, but I but it, I think that's a, it's a, it's a value choice. Is I don't think there's, I don't think you can go and find evidence about a, you know, a good or bad way to do these things. They're just, they're just trade-offs. I thought, I guess, what I thought you were going to ask is, what can we learn from tobacco about how to deal with things like uh, pharmaceutical? Because I think even the term big pharma, I think, comes from big tobacco, yeah. and that, I think that is an area in which you can find 
storytelling used for highly manipulative purposes. So you have the the WHO overseeing a you know, framework convention of tobacco control in which if you sign up you agree to not speak with tobacco companies. I mean I think that's I mean however that works out. That's a phenomenal um, effect of a simple story that these tobacco companies are, are to all intents and purposes evil corporations can't be trusted and if you include them at all you, your processes are illegitimate. I mean for me that is the most effective story you can tell about a set of corporations you don't want to be involved in policy making. Now you can learn from that and I think people are learning from that how to deal with alcohol companies and mm. pharmaceutical ones. And if you think about it, they're learning how to portray corporations as evil. I mean, I don't know, there's, there's probably a more scientific thing to describe that. But there's, they see the benefits of portraying their, their competitors as evil to delegitimize de them in the policy process. And that is something to learn from. Um, I can't say how, f it's, I think it's up to individuals how far they want to go to those lengths to say the best way to deal with their competitors is to completely undermine them. Mm -hmm. um, and I think y y in that case you, you make a value judgment, you think oh, what's my aim? I want to reduce smoking in population, I want to reduce alcohol harm, I want to mm -hmm. reduce the control of pharmaceutical prices by companies and if you know, that's, that's more important than you know, like an academic purism and I think a lot of people would take that position or they would work with you know, coalitions or groups that would do that sort of thing for them. I mean, I don't think these aren't necessarily dilemmas for each group. You know, they can form a coalition with groups who are a bit more shady than them, and uh, you know, they can you can have it all. I think by saying well, we are the evidence people, we'll give that evidence to people who are sympathetic to our aims and what they do with it. You know, has nothing to do with it. Yeah, it's a little it's shifting gear slightly. So I wonder if you have some advice for us as donors. So we don't make policy, but we make a lot of decisions. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of pressure for us to make decisions based on what works. Mm. Evidence, presumably, <coughs> or not. Um, and the five points that you, well, four and a bit <laughs> points <laughs> that you mentioned earlier, I wonder, I mean, I'm just putting you on the spot, but if you have any advice for us in terms of how we might be more, I mean, honest, really, I guess, um, in terms of the decision-making that we're doing, um, while still having some sense of fidelity to what works. Because presumably that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? Uh, we're not just funding mm. things that don't work. Yeah. Um. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> 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 well, it's a tricky one. I mean, it, I mean, from what I can see, it doesn't seem as tricky for the OSF as other bodies because it's, it, it's built on a value statement, isn't it? It's, yeah. um, it couldn't be more openly value-driven. Yeah. So. For, for me, I don't see the a problem of saying, here are our values to do with evidence. Uh, you know, we, this is what we think is good evidence. Uh, this is what we think is bad. These are the compromises we're willing to make. Or, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, it wouldn't be an easy document to produce, no. And uh, and uh, and I think, uh, I imagine you had to break it down into three statements. You could really have some real good arguments about what is in and out. Yeah, but there's no. I mean, what, what, <laughs> I could say what I like. Kind of, it's not my problem. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's. I mean, that's what I would do. Say, well, these these are the things we stand for, you know, and that would that would be the honest part because I think. That phrase, what works, I think, is, it, to, a lot, to all intents and purposes, a very dishonest phrase, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, yeah. No, I, I mean, yeah. just thank you for letting us off the hook. <laughs> <coughs> I don't know if this is what Natalie meant, but I think a statement of values, while a good idea, probably would not eliminate uh, the amount of implicit bias that goes into our decision making. Mm -hmm. Deciding based on just the fact that you trust someone. Yeah. Deciding based on the fact that <coughs> you um, have done it in the past. Mm. So it, inertia, deciding yeah. based on recency. You know, like I heard recently this was a good idea. It's fresh in my yeah. mind. You know. Yeah. I don't mm. think a value statement of values would take care of that. No, no, you're right, yeah. it wouldn't. Uh, and um, I mean, I suppose all you can do then is try and understand um, what causes these. I, th I think you're already at the stage, if you're thinking about, well, how, how can we explain our biases? You're already ahead of almost every other organization. Aren't you? So I wouldn't, I wouldn't feel too bad. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. but there is, um, I mean, what, one solution, I mean, I, I suppose your problem is, you don't want to spend too many resources on all these meta issues. Mm -hmm. So, constantly doing research on what it is you're doing when you're funding research. But there is, um, there is, I think, nascent research on why do people form networks? Why do they form coalitions? Mm -hmm. That if you knew what the answers to those questions were, you could think, well, you know, how how should you know, how should we respond? You know, because to my mind. Giving another organisation money because you trust them—that's a good thing, I think. Um, then you have to decide if you trust them because. Yeah, yeah. Is it because they're like you? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and and this comes up actually in a kind of agenda just now on science advice to government because a couple of people stood up at this thing and said, "Well, if you want policymakers to listen to what you're saying, it needs to be familiar to them." Uh, for it to be familiar, it has to be told to them by people who are just like them. Mm. Mm. And that is uh, men, men yeah. <laughs> white men in their 50s. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that's an effective strategy, but uh, yeah, kind of dodgy if you, if you like diversity in the world. Um, so, I mean, I, I mean, that would be, if you're giving it, if you're only trusting people because you know, <laughs> you spend a lot of time with them because mm. you're in the network. So that, that doesn't seem so good. But, you know, if you, tr you trust them for good reasons, that is good, isn't it? So I guess you <laughs> yeah. got to just work out. But that's a kind of soul-searching exercise, isn't it? It's not, it's not an evidence-based one. It's, uh, well, you know? I guess that's the question. Ought it to be? Mm. You know. yeah. Public spending needs to be based on, presumably, at least some I mean, that's, that's our ask, yeah. right? So although this is private money, it's still money that ought to benefit the greater good. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that's so. 
I mean, I guess there are well-established ways of doing that. You, you, you're as transparent as possible about what you decide, and then you've got advisory mm -hmm. boards to look at what you're doing and, and, and you know, make you feel good about yourselves or be your critical friends. And that sort of thing. Um, but I mean, I, so I did. I mean, I did do this piece of work with a couple of colleagues, and, and their question was, um, why did this coalition form in a new area? And we we went for three explanations. They share the same beliefs which would be handy for you, because if you can express your beliefs, you give money to people who want to follow them. Um, is it because they have some kind of authority in some way, so based on their, you know, their track record or their position? Or is it because they've worked with them in the past and they know them and they trust them because they didn't mess them around the last time? And I think it was the last one. Unfortunately, yeah. it was the last one. So that doesn't really take you. Uh, but if you know that, if you know that you trust people because they're familiar to you, uh, then you can at least ask yourself what you should do about it. I had another. Is there time for another question? Sure. Um, in in my head, I'm drawing a distinction, and tell me whether this is no. a false distinction mm -hmm. between, on the one hand, kind of getting your hands dirty, recognizing that policymakers use heuristics and are mm -hmm. motivated by different things, and engaging with that and meeting them where they're at, and so forth. Which may require a, something less than a pure loyalty to just what the so-called evidence says, mm. and yet, and but between that and cases where policymakers engage in outright, deliberate, flagrant denialism, mm. you know, um, denialism about the cause of AIDS, denialism about whether substitution treatment works for opiate addiction, denialism about climate. Mm. That, to me, it feels like it requires a different set of strategies. Yeah. But maybe those are just different points on the same spectrum? I, I don't know. No, that is a, that is a tricky one. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> I'll try to think of a good answer to this. I mean, uh, yeah, so. I think I think if if those distinctions are true, and I think intuitively they are, then you're thinking you've got a choice between two strategies. In in if in some cases you think you can work with people and you can adapt to their frame of reference. Mm. So if they're fixated on value for money, then you you you, you explain things in those purposes, even though if you had a choice, you would explain it in a different way, to do with you know wanting to help people. And that's um, if uh, you feel that you just would, it would be a poor return on investment to engage with them in those terms, then I think it's more about power, isn't it? It's about you instead you form coalitions with people who oppose that way of thinking, and you do what you can to make sure that the people who have a poor way of thinking, uh, yeah, yeah, they, they're they're not in positions of power. Um, uh, so again, because I study. Politics. I'm comfortable with that. You know, that's what that's what people do to to pursue their preferences. They they do all they can to make sure the right people are making those choices. Yeah. Uh, but I guess it'd be tricky for organisations who want to maintain some level of um, distance, so that they're not too associated with one way of thinking that they are marginalised themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. They're good questions. I mean, I've no answers, but they're. These are the fundamental questions in life <laughs> that we, we ask ourselves. 
Yeah. I mean, I think of another way of, you know, evidence where I think often, and we experience a number of our grantees, where the call for evidence is used as a way of forever mm -hmm. putting off a decision about something. You know, there's mm -hmm. never, uh, we need more evidence. You haven't got enough evidence. It's mm -hmm. not the right evidence. Mm -hmm. yeah. Come back when you have more, you know, and it just ends up as this kind of, yeah. Delegitimizing the demands mm. because there's not apparently no evidence for it, you know. And yeah. part part of that I wonder is uh, is also about what gets funded in terms of research, right? Yeah. And political mm. choices that's something mm. that we're looking at in the link to drug policy and access to medicines is where mm. substances are controlled or scheduled or seen as dangerous and harmful. Mm. There's there there's less investment in uh, researching the medical benefits of cannabis is an obvious one, but there are others as well. Mm. You know, and the politics behind the the evidence, if you like, even evidence generation. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, this this came up recently when I was in a, a committee. I mean, such a micro level, but I think my solution there was to get people to accept that they would make an in principle decision first, and then if the evidence didn't go against them to go for it. And that's very different from saying let's collect and then make a decision in a year. Yeah. But again, I mean, th as I say that, it sounds a bit like policy-based evidence, doesn't yeah. it? You know, <laughs> so you gotta watch, you gotta watch how you frame that kind of thing. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you very much. I think it's very really interesting. And I think, and I think definitely this, um, you know, at least having to, I mean, I think we have to grapple with the idea that we're not just, you know, this is as much as we like to think ourselves as the good guys, that we have to engage it with power as much as anybody else, and you know, um, it's not that we have all the right. I mean, we think we have the right answers, but it's also engaging in the power process. But I also think about how we think about coalitions with scientists and with researchers or people we fund, and how we how they all fit together. Um, yeah. Well, thanks so much, and thanks everyone for coming. Thank and you. Yeah. Thank you.